Good morning, church. So grateful for the opportunity to be with you again in worship and to herald the word of God. Grateful that Pastor Todd has provided this opportunity in his absence. And grateful for you and for all of your love and for all of your faithfulness before the Lord. We have a rather long passage to consider today. So let us turn quickly to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and stand as we read together. <clears throat> if you are using a pew Bible, it is on page 259. 2 Samuel chapter 7, reading from the English Standard Version. And when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel." And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, 
Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was small, a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the scriptures inspired by you, breathed out by you, so that we might know you. For you can only be known if you make yourself known. We would never seek you out. Thank you for the house of God that you have invited us in kindly, that we might be here among the saints of God in your presence. What a privilege, what a mercy to us. Be with us now, God, with a filling of your spirit. Continue to walk among us, God. Make your power and glory known as even David rushed to the house of the Lord to see. Please speak to every heart, God, with encouragement and hope, with conviction of sin and with instruction in righteousness. God, magnify the name of Christ today. Do it for your name all around Oak Park to our neighbors on the right hand and on the left, for all around Chicagoland and around the world with those whom we partner. Bless God that even on this day, many of a billion Muslims might hear the truth about Jesus Christ and might turn to him crying out for salvation and might today's service and all of his parts and all that has been done here at Calvary today be done for your glory among that unreached population. And then God, give grace, God, so that every family is strengthened here, that every person's walk with you matures in holiness because of all you do. Give me power now, God, physical and emotional strength, direct and edit as the Spirit wills, God, speak to each and every heart. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we are so grateful for this opportunity now, and we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The language of success through greater human efforts abounds in our culture. Illinois lawmakers need to stay in Springfield until they can pass a budget. Let's make America great again. It's a rebuilding year for the Blackhawks and for the Bears and the Bulls and the Sox. Whatever you want to put in that sentence, it'll probably work. Certainly, where more achievement is desired or where there may have been mediocrity or failure, better and greater human effort is worthwhile. Budgets do not pass themselves. 
countries do not meander into greatness. And teams do not get to the playoffs, the cup, or the pennant without reorganizations, better drafts and minicamps, and tougher and wiser play on the field, court, or ice. Both smarter and harder work are needed in order to put a mark in the W column. Success through greater human effort is a problem, however, when it comes to having a pleasing Christian life. While it goes without saying for many that God does not require works for justification, much of our sanctification is a subtle attempt for us to work harder, or rather, for us to help God because he would be pleased with our efforts. Your course line goes something like this. God cannot be happy with me. If he is, why is my parenting so hard? I'm going to work harder in my quiet times, and I'm going to work harder to be the best parents. I'm just going to grind out better parenting. Or I will be a better husband. I'm never going to lose my cool again. Right. I will be a better wife this time, not doing anything to turn off this husband the way I did the last one. If I had just found more time to spend with my child 30 years ago, she would treat me better now, but I can make up for it, and maybe she'll forgive me and bring the grandchildren around to see me more often. I shouldn't be lonely or depressed. I'm a Christian. I am going to get this right. So off you go on the next spiritual version of a Whole30 program combined with CrossFit workouts. There even is a corporate form of pulling the train engine rather than letting the train engine pull you. Our church used to be filled up to where we needed three services. We should have four services by now. We need to see what we can do to make our church as good as it was then. I'm going to try to put myself in a position of leadership so I can help make that happen. Then we try to will success in the name of faithfulness, thinking God will be pleased if I try even harder. David thought that the Lord would be pleased by his human efforts, but David received a very different message from the Lord, a message that was freeing for him, and one that also brings praise, far greater praise than would our best human efforts before the Lord. That message involved understanding one simple truth. You and I do not establish anything for God. God will establish you. We need to learn or review three things in order to join David in this freeing and joyous truth. The first is this. God does not ask us to help him. God does not ask us to help him. David is identified three times as the king in the first three verses, emphasizing that the kingdom is united under his rule and that he has achieved the place for which he was anointed by the prophet Samuel. As king, David looks at the greatness of his cedar house and his rest from all his enemies, and he comes to a conclusion. He is doing better off than the ark of God, which is the place of the presence of God. 
The ark only claims a portable tent as its home, and he feels he should do something to correct this. Seemingly, he's doing something good and right, for he even has Nathan the prophet's approval. Yet Nathan later will receive words to give to David that question David's actions. It says in verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? If the Lord had wanted a permanent home, he could have made this known when giving the law at Sinai. Or he could have told Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Samuel, or another of Israel's judges that they could have then led the people to get it done. It's as if the Lord is saying, in the 400 years since the Exodus, I have not asked for that, David, when I easily could have said, hey, hey, I need you to stop what you're doing and build a house for me. So Nathan tells David that his efforts are not needed. Then, however, to be even clearer on who has what role in this universe, the Lord gives a second word for Nathan to say to David. He tells him, in effect, you were just a simple shepherd when I came and made you king over my people. I defeated those enemies so that you might have rest. And I will see that my people get the land of promise in full peace. I, says the Lord, have made you from start to finish, and I did not need your help along the way. The issue the Lord addresses with David is not the building for Solomon will make a building later with the Lord's approval. It's not about the cedar. The Lord gets behind the intention and the goal of David to the motivation. David is thinking to himself, the Lord ought to have something better than me. Or rather, he ought to have my best. The idea that we ought to give the Lord our best seems so pious and so good. But this is only so if we fail to remember that our best is laden with sin and anxiety, insecurity, and pride. Our best works and our best efforts do not bring anything to the Lord except faithful obedience. The Lord doesn't look down and say, now that singing today that you all did at Calvary Memorial. That was so much better than last week's because the entire congregation today hit all the notes with perfect pitch and in perfect sync with the musicians and the worship leader. No, he simply gives us breath and grace to sing. And he gives us grace and power to play music. And then he looks for us to be humble and faithful. There is not an equal sign between faithful, and excellent. 
There is no equal sign between the two. One is measuring a stewardship and the other is measuring a level of accuracy. The right note, the right pitch, the volume, the timing, the amount of passion, appropriate length and alignment with the sermon content. All that right stuff is excellent in human measure, but is still excellently wretched in God's holy measure. Now, you might be saying to me, Pastor Eric, why are you picking on worship and throwing stones at us? Okay, so that you understand that I'm not picking on worship and that I'm actually making a comparison between faithful and excellence, let me turn the sights to small groups, my area. Your small group meets one week, everyone shows up on time, you share the best meal ever. No kids interrupt the discussion or prayer. You give equal portions to study and interceding for one another. And the discussion time goes into some really deep sharing, confession of sin, rebuke, and encouragement. Your leader leads you to end right on time, and everyone leaves happier than before. That small group meeting was executed perfectly with small group brilliance and I will get to use your experience on a blog post on Calvary's website. But it was no better than the previous time you met in which everyone loved one another imperfectly, but in an increasing manner over the course of the night. The food tasted a little bit freezer-burned or unseasoned. And there were so many interruptions by the children that only half the group could pray for about seven minutes while the others took the children into the backyard. The Lord is not looking for us to help make him greater by giving him our best. He is great, and he is so great, he does not and cannot have any partners in accomplishing his will in us. He does not ask us to help him. Second, God alone brings about good works and success in us. The Lord flips the script on David, and we are glad he does. We now go beyond the Lord not needing David to build him a house to David needing the Lord to build David a house. With words explicitly and originally to David and the dynasty of his descendants, the Lord offers a prophecy known as the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant amplifies the promise God made to Abraham that a nation would come through him and his descendants and be great. It's an unconditional promise to David and his posterity that they would receive an eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom. It is a key to understanding God's plan to rule over and through man, through Christ, the final ruler from the offspring of David. In order to provide redemption and rest for the people of God, that is, for you and for I. The Davidic covenant promised the following. David's name would be great. David would have rest from war and his enemies. David would have a son who would exceed him and establish a kingdom. David's son would build a temple for God rather than David. The Lord would establish the Davidic son's throne forever. 
And the right to the throne would never be taken from the Davidic dynasty, although an individual son king could experience discipline for obedience and have the king removed from his hand for his period of rule. And finally, David's house, throne, and kingdom would endure forever. The covenant did not guarantee rule by David's posterity would be uninterrupted, yet prerogative to exercise the privilege of ruling always will belong to David's house. All of these promises that the Lord makes through Nathan in this prophecy come true in both limited and final senses in Scripture. That is, David's name is great in that each king in Judah after David was measured by how well he walked in the ways of his father David. And David's name is greater because of Christ, the son of David. David experienced temporary rest from wars and his enemies, and his descendants will experience it in finality in a time yet to come when Jesus returns. David would have a son who would exceed him and establish a kingdom. Solomon built a temple, but only Jesus builds the promised kingdom and the true temple of God. And only, the only Davidic son who lasts forever is Jesus. Jesus is God's king. He is God the king who will establish his own kingdom forever. This is the king you and I want to rule your life if you want God's blessing and eternal life. He is God's king. He will be established forever and will establish forever those who believe on him in faith alone. In all of the covenant promises, the Lord is the solo actor as he builds Solomon's temple, the Davidic dynasty, and sends to us the Christ. In the same way that the Lord brings about a plan of salvation and fulfills it through David's line, building him a temple too, the Lord promises that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He works to will and to do to us of his good pleasure, Philippians 2 says. And the Apostle Paul says this, I worked harder than any of the other apostles but it was not I, but grace. It was the grace of God. It is the Lord who says, I will build my church. That is the Lord's job. There are commands and admonitions to holiness and church maturity, but the best efforts of the saints doing the work of the ministry still are the Lord cleansing his bride, the Lord presenting us in splendor to himself without any spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. We are not cleansing ourselves. The Lord is the one who is cleansing us. You and I can throw more effort into individual Christian living and give more works of service to make our families better and our church stronger in all of its ministries. However, if the Lord is not blowing in the wind of our sails, if he is not the sail and the boat and the water, all of our best efforts do not matter. He does not hand the car keys to us and say, here, go now. 
Be holy and make that church the most incredible church in the history of Oak Park and all around Chicagoland. No, no, no. Instead, the Lord establishes us the way he established David, his sons, Jesus as the Christ and the coming kingdom. Now, I know some of you right now are asking, but Pastor Eric, what what about obedience? Yes, there is a place for obedience. I know who you are. I know you're asking. I know that. As Pastor John Piper has said, quote, Christianity is fundamentally convalescence. Patients do not serve their physicians. They trust them for good prescriptions. Of course, this means obedience. A patient obeys his doctor in the hopes of getting well. A convalescent sinner trusts the painful directions of his therapist and follows them. Only in this way do we keep ourselves in a position to benefit from what the divine physician has to offer. In all this obedience, it is we who are the beneficiaries. God is ever the giver, for it is the giver who gets the glory, unquote. Three, praise and prayer is all we can offer to God for establishing us. Praise and prayer is all we can offer to God for establishing us. After receiving this oracle from the Lord, David simply sits in the presence of God. You can tell that David is overwhelmed by the magnitude of God's grace toward him by looking at the questions that David gives to the Lord in response. Who who am I? It's really personal for David. Who am I, Lord? What is my house? What more can David say to you? He even changes the person because he's overwhelmed. What more can David say to you? Who is like your people Israel? You also can see that David is overcome and understands the work of God to do all things in his kingdom and that it all is a work of God alone for the one who was identified three times as the king in verses one through three now refers to himself as your servant no less than 10 times in these verses. He also calls God the Lord God at least eight times in these verses, and he calls him the Lord of hosts twice. David recognizes the sovereign God, the Lord God, who rules the armies of heavens, the Lord of hosts. He has spoken, and David is just a lowly servant by grace. David does not need to build anything for the one who has been building for him and his people their whole lives. So he lets off praise and prayer to God as the only appropriate responses. First, David's praise celebrates the greatness of God's treatment of his servant. David says in here, what what more can I say? He's speechless. He is so overcome. Yet, Somehow he still finds words. We understand this. Our God is so good and his grace is so marvelous that we would empty out an Oxford unabridged thesaurus if we were trying to find synonymous words to talk about all of his glorious grace toward every one of us. We at some point would just say, is that the last page of the thesaurus? I don't have any more words to talk about how great God's grace is toward us. Yet all David wants to say largely finds summation down in verse 22. 
He says in verse 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. There is none like you. There is no God beside you. The gods of the nations, their people have to prop them up and carve them out and burn them and paint them and appease them with all sorts of sacrifices. But God, you are doing all the pleasurable things on our behalf. This refrain we hear repeatedly in Scripture when the Israelites come out of of Egypt in the Exodus and they land on dry ground on the other side of the Red Sea. They say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The psalmist says, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. The Lord says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And then he adds this line, which sometimes we miss, I equip you, though you do not know me. And in Jeremiah 10, it says, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. So powerful is this truth running through scriptures. Many songwriters have captured it. It was captured in our song today. And also, some of you remember that old Hillsong music line that said, there is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. I can search for all eternity, Lord. There is none like you. David's praise celebrates the Lord's establishment of Israel and their redemption from Egypt. Verses 23 to 24, which we did not read earlier, say, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be among his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. There is no other nation the Lord redeemed other than Israel. No one else experienced redemption for Egypt. For no one else did God drop down the plagues. For no one else did God kill the firstborn son of their enemies. For no one else did God pass over them when he was coming through and bringing death on the enemies. No other nation is called out by his name but Israel only. Therefore, this portion of David's praise is about election. Only God's elect are redeemed by God, for he chose us in himself before the foundation of the world, just as he chose Israel as his own while not choosing any other nation. For the nation he chose, he paid the person's price by blood of the Passover in ancient Israel. That's our Easter story, our ancient Easter story, before we get to the cross. Now he redeems his church by the death of Christ, whose blood was shed for sin, so that our blood was not shed for our own sins. 
Now, I know the biblical teaching on election is a tough pill for some to swallow. But I suspect you did not gag because there is not enough evidence for it in Scripture, for the New Testament is replete with verses showing that God chose believers in Christ in eternity past. Neither do I think you choke over an apparent sense of unfairness on the part of God in choosing some and passing over others. For God should not have chose any of us, and he should pour out his wrath on every one of us. So to be chosen in eternity past for salvation is an act of the highest mercy, and to accuse God of otherwise is to think much too lightly of our own sinfulness. Instead, you swallow hard over this doctrine because you have a loved one who is unsaved, or you have a loved one who died and was unsaved as far as you know. Your emotions make you hesitant to accept what Scripture teaches, but I would remind you that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and that this general invitation is offered to everyone. The Lord offers this invitation even to you among us today who have been slow in accepting the death of Jesus for your sins, who have been slow to understand that only one promised to get himself up from the dead and defeated death and offered eternal life. I would suggest to you that there is a beautiful truth behind David's words and the rest of the teaching of Scripture that might kindle praise in you the way it does in David. Let me, let me explain. We are the bride selected by the most outstanding lover. We have the most outstanding lover and he picked us. We are the sheep who have the greatest shepherd. All the other sheep are jealous. We are the slaves with the most merciful and kind master who at the same time sees us as freedmen. We are the guilty, rebellious sinners with the most faithful, self-sacrificing advocate as we face the most gracious judge who declares himself or who declares us righteous himself when we have no righteousness within at all. Those who are not elect of God have to search for their own lover. They have to look for a good shepherd, a kind master, and an advocate. The only thing which they will not have to search for is a judge full of righteousness and wrath against sin because they certainly are going to meet up with him. But for we, for whom Christ has provided redemption... We did not go searching for him because we do not build a house for him. He builds a house for us. He came as the lover looking for me and you, and we didn't even know marriage to God was a thing we would need or could even enjoy. He came to corral us when we were floundering on our backs and shepherdless, trying to make work on our own but failing. I will overcome this despondency and this anger and this bitterness. I will make it so that my kids turn back to me. I will be a better worker. I won't lose a job again. And we were floundering and failing, and he came along and said, would you like me to take over now? 
Do you mind if I help you with that? Because I can get it done without yourself, your help. He saw that we were slaves of a brutal master. Sin had us doing its bidding. He knew we could never pay the price to get our own freedom. So he paid it all and said, now you are my slaves. Please go free. He stepped up in the courtroom and said, your case, bub, is hopeless. It's all stacked against you. But you know what? I will represent you because I am the very best lawyer that there is. Oh, and by the way, the judge is my father and I've already paid him off. Election, God choosing us, is a beautiful and praiseworthy thing. It is a good thing David is elect too, for he will need salvation secured by God alone when he sleeps with Bathsheba and then kills her husband. Third, David's praise finds courage to ask for the Lord to confirm his word for his name's sake. Verse 25 says, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. This is amazing. The truth of salvation gives us courage to ask God to do as his word has promised to do in us. You and I can say to God, God, conform me as a husband to the image of your son. God, give grace to your humble servant in all of my tasks on my job. God, please exalt in due time your child who faces the prowling attacks of the enemy. God, make this assembly of your bride beautiful so that none shall ever prevail over her. Fourth, David's praise seeks God to bless his house so that it might continue to honor the Lord forever. The last two verses say, and now, O Lord, God, you are God and your works are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. With your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David is asking the Lord to give a legacy blessing. If God is the one establishing, then this is a legitimate request of faith. David does not want blessing for himself only. He understands that he is only one piece in the plan of God to bring glory to himself in all the earth in every generation. So he prays in line with the Lord's establishment of future generations. Even though political Israel maintains constant vigilance over her enemies, and those outside of Palestine support her in hope. Spiritual Israel, believing Messianic Jews, the God-fearing remnant of Israel, continues in the promises of the Lord to David because of Christ. They give Israel a legacy of blessing in accordance with the prayer of David. Wisely, 
looking to the one who must establish, build, grow, expand, beautify, and eventually wed his church, we too can and should pray for the Lord to bless our children, grandchildren, and those who will carry the faith in our families and at Calvary Memorial after us. As we recognized just two years ago at the 100th anniversary, we want a faithful, doctrinally sound, God-fearing, loving, Calvary Memorial Church at 931 Lake Street, sharing the gospel another 100 years from now if the Lord delays his return until then. We want our grandchildren and great-grandchildren to walk with the Lord. For the Lord is not establishing us only. The programming here, the preaching, all of the prayers are not for an adult generation only. Instead, all is for generations younger and coming so that the gospel continues beyond us. Our prayer should be, bless this, your church, O Lord, for decades to come, that we might be strong in you and our children might be strong afterwards. Bless each of our children and grandchildren to walk uprightly with you. And many of you already are praying that and have been praying so for many years. Living by God's grace is how you have faith in circumstances of doubt rejection, fear, oppressive demands, injustice, new family challenges, financial setbacks, oversized callings, and everything else that comprises a life that intends to please the Lord. A heart after God is just that. It is a heart after God, the God who works for us for our God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is the God who works for us, and we do not work to make things better for him. Jesus is the God who will establish you. Let us stop working and let us let him do the work. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and bless you for your grace and are glad that it does not rest on our feeble efforts, not salvation, not sanctification, certainly not glorification. Remind us constantly that all of our obedience is fully infused and submersed in grace and mercy. Remind us that all of our efforts will only work if you are the captain on this boat. You are the wind, the sails, the boat, and everything else, including the water. God, help every adult child today trying to grind it out to please an even older parent. Be with an even older parent trying to muscle it out, God, and conjure up more strength inside to be that blessing to a child by rectifying wrongs done years ago. Oh God, may we rest in your grace. Be with us as workers, be with us as servants, be with us as people who want to please you. But constantly, God, make it known to us through your spirit that you have done all work for us 
through your son on the cross. We love you, Lord Jesus. We give you thanks for your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.